Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. Robert Lustig, professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco, a top-rate scientist and a clinician as well. Dr. Lustig is an expert in the issue of childhood obesity, its consequences, and its drivers. He's also the author of a forthcoming book that will be published in January called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. So, if we think about childhood obesity, a lot of potential drivers, but I know that you're particularly interested in some of the dietary drivers, and we can talk about sugar and processed food, fiber in that context, but let's start with sugar. Um, What's your opinion about sugar, and what sort (laughs) of an effect it's having? Well, here's the thing. Sugar's been around a long time. 1200 BC is the first uh, documentation of sugar availability, and it was in India. Uh, so this is outside of appearing naturally in foods, you mean? Right, exactly, where it was you know, processed to a specific consistency, that it was separate from just what was in food. Uh, we have increased our sugar consumption to something that is just unbelievably high. Our ancestors getting food out of the ground consumed about an ounce of sugar a day. We are now up to six and a half ounces. And half of that increase, in other words, from three to six and a half, has occurred in the last 30 years because of the changes in the food supply that are very specific and have very specific reasons why it has occurred, some of which were food industry driven and some of which were government driven. And of course, some of them were our palate driven as well. Bottom line, a little is okay, and a lot is not. We have a limited capacity to be able to metabolize sugar in our livers, and we have exceeded that. And by doing so, we have created disease. Have we exceeded it by a lot? By way a lot, and that is the problem. The American Heart Association guidelines, which I subscribe to because I helped write, say that we should be consuming nine teaspoons a day of sugar, added sugar for men, and six teaspoons a day of added sugar for women. We are right now, maximum, that's maximum. And we are right now up to 22 teaspoons per day average. So we need to cut back by two thirds in order to stay below the level that would cause disease. And there is no chance that we can do that with our current food supply. So I'd like to come back and talk about that food supply and where the sugar is found most abundantly. But what happens to the body when people are over-consuming sugar? As you eat sugar in your intestine, the bond between the glucose, which is a six-membered ring and not particularly dangerous, and the fructose, which is a five-membered ring and is the really bad mover in this whole story, gets cleaved. It gets absorbed across the intestine and goes straight to the liver. At the liver, that fructose has to get processed. And almost all of it will be processed to fat. The only way 
it doesn't get processed to fat is if you are glycogen depleted. That means that you don't have enough liver starch in your liver for uh, an energy reserve. Then it can get converted to glycogen. Uh, and, or if you're an elite athlete and you're out on the gridiron, you know, sweating up a storm, then it'll also go straight to energy metabolism or to glycogen also. So bottom line, you know, elite athletes, you know, if you're a member of the Florida Gators and you're, you know, out there out on the gridiron for three hours, you can drink what the hell you want, okay? But the rest of us have a limit, have a threshold. And we, every time you consume a sugar-sweetened beverage, you have exceeded that threshold. That's what it comes down to. And what your liver is going to do is it's going to take that fructose and it's going to turn it into fat. And when it turns it into fat, bad things start happening in the liver. That causes a process called insulin resistance. And insulin resistance in the liver tells the pancreas you have to make more insulin. That drives insulin levels up all over the body. In addition, every time fructose is metabolized, it generates a little bit of hydrogen peroxide inside the cells. Now, hydrogen peroxide on the skin will certainly kill bacteria, and that's good if you're trying to sterilize a wound. But if you're, trying, if you're making hydrogen peroxide inside your cells, that's killing your cells, and that's not such a good thing. So it contributes to the aging process as well. The third way that sugar is a problem is that it actually tells your brain you want more. It stimulates an area called the reward center. And if you continue to overstimulate that reward center constantly, what happens is that you develop a process called tolerance, and it's the same tolerance of drug addicts. And you need more of the substance to get the same level of effect. And then if you take that substance away, now you have withdrawal. And tolerance and withdrawal have clearly been seen in chronic sugar consumption. So we have three different processes going on that are very specific to sugar the white stuff. The liver fat, the aging process, and the drive for continued consumption. Put those three things together, it's a toxin. Would you say that the, the concept of addiction is warranted here? I think you were alluding to that, talking about craving and tolerance and withdrawal and things like that. Do you think addiction applies here in the case of sugar? I think it does apply. I think it's weakly addictive. I mean, when people talk about addictive substances, they're usually talking about morphine, cocaine, heroin, you know, big-time addictive substances. But we have some more moderately addictive substances, for instance, alcohol, nicotine. Um, and sugar is a weakly addictive substance, but it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So it's very hard to break yourself of an addiction when you've got uh, saturation of the market. Well, it sounds like it doesn't take an awful lot of sugar overconsumption to create metabolic havoc. So even a weak, weak form of addiction could matter. Absolutely. And that's what I think what we're seeing. There are lots of different ways of adding sugar to products. High fructose corn syrup, beet sugar, cane sugar, um, juice, concentrates, things like this. Does it matter what kind? No, it doesn't. There are 48 names for sugar, and that's very specific. There's a reason why there are 48 names for sugar, and that's because the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990, the thing that gave us nutrition facts on the side of the box, it says that you have to list the ingredients by mass. So you can have a product where a different sugar is number five, number six, number seven, number eight. When you add them up, it's a number one. And that's a great way to hide the sugar. And the reason I know that this is true is because our clinic coordinator 
used to work for one of the major food companies in marketing, and he used to attend the meetings where they used to say, okay, where do we hide the sugar on this one? Well, that's amazing. So to think that the companies intentionally spread the sugar across different things so it appears in the label mask the amount of sugar that's really in it. They have many ways of masking what's going on. So this, I'm assuming, would argue for labeling requirements that would have an added sugar component to it. Well, that's something I'm really pushing for is to, instead of having total sugar on the label, have added sugar on the label. See, here's the problem, Kelly, in 10 words or less. All food is inherently good. It's what we do to the food that makes it not. Adding sugar is a standard uh, procedure uh, for processed food to increase, quote, palatability. You might as well just change the word to sales. So just to clarify that statement about all, all food is inherently good, I'm assuming what you mean are the constituents of food, like wheat is inherently good, but when you turn it into a salty snack food, then it becomes well, not good. No, wheat is an inherently good food, and as soon as you mill it and turn it into flour, it's not. Because the fiber that surrounded that wheat kernel, the brown part was the good part. We need that fiber. That fiber is actually necessary for appropriate digestion, absorption, and metabolism. The role of fiber in our everyday lives has been completely vacated by the USDA, by you know scientists in general. That fiber does so many things that are necessary for our metabolic health. It changes the rate of absorption of nutrients from the gut into the bloodstream, giving your liver a chance to catch up. It increases the speed of transit through the intestines so that you get your satiety signal sooner. It changes the intestinal microbiome. It actually changes the bacteria to uh, uh, favor uh, bacteria that will actually absorb some of these nutrients themselves so we don't end up absorbing them, so we actually get less of them. It reduces the rate of absorption such that bacteria can turn some of the long-chain fatty acids into short-chain fatty acids, which then suppress insulin secretion, which is a good thing. Bottom line, fiber is really important, and we have none. So that you've sort of led naturally into the discussion of processed foods, that, that foods, a lot of people have made the argument that foods are now something unrecognizable to human biology because of the amount of processing that goes, goes into it. Would you agree with that? Oh, sure, absolutely. Michael Pollan said it very well. If your grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food, it isn't. So somebody said to me, well, what about miso, edamame, and tempeh? And I said, okay, somebody's grandmother <laughs> recognizes it. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. <clears throat> what, uh, where is all the sugar showing up in the food supply? Well, you know, it's, it really is scattered throughout. The uh, most recent data that I saw said that 33% or one-third is in the sugar-sweetened beverages. And, that, of course, that is easily identifiable, definable, and completely and totally unnecessary for human survival. There is not a micronutrient in the bunch. You know, that is the easiest target to go after. But the fact of the matter is that two-thirds is in other stuff. And so it makes it a little bit more challenging and a little bit more difficult to figure out how to 
actually reduce consumption when it's in the barbecue sauce and it's in the hamburger buns and it's in the hamburger meat. Ask um, Taco Bell what they uh, put in their meat. Uh, The fact of the matter is this is across the board. 80% of the 600,000 food items that are in American supermarkets today are laced with added sugar. So that then brings up the question, well, what can you eat? The fact of the matter is, not much, and it's because the food industry made it so. Um, it's interesting that how the sugar is spread across the food supply because people would naturally think about things like pastries, candy bars, and the like. But you're talking about it being just in normal day-to-day foods where you'd never expect sugar to be. Absolutely. It's in the tomato sauce. Here, here's the way to think about it. <clears throat> there are five tastes on your tongue. They're sweet, of course. There's salty, sour, bitter, and then there's one called umami, or astringent like soy sauce. Sugar covers up the other four. It covers up salty, like Chex Mix or honey roasted peanuts. It covers up sour, like lemonade or the Sus Reserve, the German wines. You know, the Rieslings are sweet because they're so acidic you wouldn't drink them otherwise. It covers up bitter, like milk, chocolate, right? Caffeine's bitter. And it covers up umami, like sweet and sour pork. You know, it's half soy sauce. You wouldn't eat that. But your brain, you know, the tongue plays a trick on your brain. You can't even tell it's salty. That's interesting. So could you make an argument that the extent that the tongue is a signal that you've had enough of something like salt and sugar is masking that, that that would lead to overconsumption of other negative substances? Absolutely. That's, I no mean, that, that's the sort of a problem that I haven't heard many people talking about. And that yeah. puts well, a whole new angle on things. Sugar increases the salience of everything else, clearly. I mean, fat is interesting, okay? But, you know, the Atkins diet works. And the Atkins diet works. People are not going out and, you know, buying extra steaks because, you know, fat is addictive. On the other hand, what about a Cinnabon? That's a whole other story. So sugar increases the salience of fat. I mean, and which would you rather have, a Cinnabon or a Pixie Stick? You know, the fact is, you put the fat and the sugar together, and now you got something. And unfortunately, that's what they've done, and that's what we're suffering from. So this question is hardly worth asking because the answer is pretty obvious. But let me ask it anyway. Why are companies putting so much sugar in everything? You're right, it is. (laughs) The answer is because it increases their sales. Okay. Prior to the advent of high fructose corn syrup in 1975, the annual profit margin of the food industry was 1% per year. Well, the increase in the general population was 1% per year. In other words, they sold more food by selling the same amount of food per person to more people. Since 1975, their annual profit margin's 5% per year. And if anything, our annual birth rate's gone down. So who's buying the extra food? We are. So... The industry obviously is in the business of trying to maximize the desirability of the products that it produces, and in most industries that's okay, but when you start getting a conflict with public health, then you enter into this problematic area where government decides to be involved all of a sudden. Well, the fact of the matter is government has decided not to be involved, and very specifically because 6% of our exports are food. What do you think would happen if all of a sudden we announced to all of our trading partners, you know... All that sugar we put in and all that fiber we took out, you know, it really isn't so good for you. What happened when that one downer cow went from Canada to Washington State? It wasn't even our cow. That was the end of meat sales to Britain and South Korea for two years. Bottom line, the food industry needs for this message 
to continue. And unfortunately, this message is absolutely diametrically opposite to appropriate public health. So one of the first people I heard make the following statement was Marion Nessel, and she, she said that the industry is in the business of selling food, which means selling calories, and that they may stay, they may say that it's not in their best interest for the population to be obese, but in fact, if the population is obese, it means they're eating X amount of uh, food beyond what they should be eating, um, and then that is, all goes right to the bottom line in the industry. Does that stance make sense to you? Well, let's take cigarettes. They were killing people, but you know what? There were enough people coming up that they didn't care about the ones they lost at the top. Same thing here. They're branding these kids at very early ages with sweet foods very early on. So I don't think they're particularly worried about how many people die from this. And the thing is, right now, it's completely and totally legal because fructose, the sweet part of sugar, is on the grass list, G-R-A-S, generally regarded as safe. So there, there's no even corporate malfeasance going on here at this point. This is completely, totally legal. It's just a public health debacle. Well, one of the things that um, I give you a lot of credit for is that you have gone beyond uh, the scientific part of what you do and thought about the implications of this and what it might mean out there in the world and what might be done about it. So what are some of your ideas about what the country might do to approach this issue? So my job is to bring the science to the policy. That's really what I see myself doing. Uh, And having worked in basic science, having worked in clinical research, having worked in clinical medicine, and now extending into policy, you know, I feel like I at least can connect the dots in, you know, maybe a way that hadn't been thought of before. So the question is, what do you do? How do you fix this? For substances that are abused but not toxic, who cares? Caffeine. And whatever you do, don't take my coffee away from me. (laughs) For substances that are toxic but not abused, like vitamin A, vitamin D, iron, they'll kill you too, but there's no abuse potential. You don't have to do anything either. For substances that are both toxic and abused at the same time, like cocaine, amphetamine, nicotine, cannabis, ethanol, morphine, heroin, we end up needing personal intervention, for instance, rehab, and we need societal intervention, which for lack of a better word, we'll call laws. And so the question is, does sugar fit this same uh, criteria? And the answer is yes, it does. So how do you construct a personal intervention and a societal intervention that would go hand in hand together? Personal intervention, well, starts with education. And that's why we're doing this podcast, is for education. The problem is that the data on education around calories, sugar, menu labeling, thus far have not shown any change in behavior. And that's very, very worrisome and disturbing. However, maybe not too surprising because it was also true for every other drug of abuse. Did Nancy Reagan's Just Say No work? Not really. An example. So I don't think education is enough. The New York City Department of Health is putting all of this effort into these public service announcements, man drinking fat. They're great. They're terrific. The uh, state of Georgia just had this, you know, really awful campaign with, you know, showing fat kids and, uh, and you know, 
you know, how they felt about it. It was very, very disturbing. Um, but, you know, that's not going to change people's behavior, and it can't change people's behavior when there's an addictive component. So the question is, how can we reduce consumption? The standard way to reduce consumption across the board for every other substance where we need to reduce it is called taxation. And Kelly, you know about this better than anybody else in the country. And I support the notion of taxation. The question is, to what end, for what purpose? And you and I have had this discussion. A low tax will certainly generate money for programs, but modeling and the few uh, uh, natural experiments that have gone on so far have not really reduced consumption all that much. And since we have so much to get down, I'm not sure about a low-level tax. It might end up uh, being a problem because then the food industry will say, see, didn't work. Or worse yet, because of the price elasticity around a can of soda, they'll just lower the price of soda down to make up for the tax and say, see, it didn't work anyway. You know what, by the way, I agree with you on that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if before long the food industry, especially the soda people, don't go looking to government to enact a tax nationally that is specifically a low tax to lock in something that might even preempt states and cities from doing something higher on their own uh, to, to accomplish the very thing that you're talking about. So higher taxes certainly are going to be necessary to affect consumption. Right. <clears throat> you know, we, we saw this with the toy ban in San Francisco. The food industry decided to get around it by selling the toy for 10 cents. You know, the bottom line is they have their ways. They're going to sell product because that's how they make money. And ultimately, if they're making money is uh, against the public good and the public welfare, the question is, where's the line? And only the judicial branch can answer that question. And I think ultimately, that's where a lot of this is going to go, as uh, occurred with tobacco, as occurred with alcohol. I think that ultimately will where, be where we'll end up having to bring this. But that's probably 20 years away. So thinking, um, if that is a way away, which I think I would agree with, then what about legislative things? So labeling requirements, for example. Well, labeling requirements are another form of education. Uh, certainly there are things that we can do within the educational realm that would be good. The question is, will it be sufficient? And I'm of the opinion that it's one of those things that's necessary but not sufficient. What about um, regulatory intervention, for example, considering sugar not to be generally regarded as safe. That is where I think the, the rubber hits the road. As long as the Food and Drug Administration calls fructose generally regarded as safe, which it has since 1958, and which the last uh, review of this was in 1986, before the sugar glut, before high fructose corn syrup, before the number of calories that we're currently consuming in sugar were even done. I think this needs to be re-reviewed now, given all of the data and all of the science that has come out. However, an FDA spokesperson recently said that there, this is not even remotely on the docket no, for the FDA. No, I can't imagine it would be. But that doesn't mean it won't be at some point as the right. science continues to build and the public grows more and more concerned. That's the goal, is to generate enough public interest in this so that ultimately the executive branch is 
coerced into getting the FDA to do its job. So if that uh, distinction got made and sugar got considered not generally regarded as safe, that would give government the authority to start to regulate how much of it could be added to foods and things? It would also uh, cause the food industry voluntarily to start withdrawing a lot of the sugar that it had put in products because it had basically identified it as a target. The fact of the matter is trans fats are on that generally regarded as safe list, but they're doing their best to try to reduce the number of trans fats because enough public interest has forced it. On the other hand, there is a congressman in Tennessee right now, uh, and he's a physician, Scott Desjarlais, who has tried to introduce House Resolution 3848, which is the AG gag rule, which is basically to say that if you uh, uh, badmouth any item that's on the FDA's grass list, that's a federal crime, and you can get your sorry ass hauled into jail. Pretty so I'd like to see Michael Bloomberg hauled into jail over trans fats. <laughs> that would be kind of interesting. Um, one question I wanted to ask, uh, that, and is something that you alluded to before, was caffeine. Um, now, caffeine is generally regarded as safe. People consume it in coffee and a lot of other things. But would you consider it a public health problem because it's so often connected with calories? Like, could you ever see a point when caffeine is considered generally regarded as safe if it's not coupled with calories? But if it is, then you get the addictive impact of the sugar added to the addictive impact of the caffeine. And what do you think about that? That's a a great thought. Uh, You know, I actually hadn't thought of it in just that way. Um, Certainly. I mean, the fact of the matter is that sugar is weakly addictive. Caffeine is moderately addictive. You put them together, you have something called a soda. And that's got a real problem. And... You know, that's, that's what we have to break. Now, I, like I said before, I drink black coffee, and I drink about three or four cups a day. And if you take my coffee away, I'll kill you. But um, to say we can have caffeinated beverages as long as they are not teamed with sugar at the same time. So people who have to get their caffeine, yeah, that's fine. And you know what? If they're going to go add packets of sugar themselves, so be it. But at least they don't have to be sold that way. Well, this reminds me of our discussion of processed foods, that it could be the caffeine that's found naturally in something like coffee is okay and not going to create so many problems. But when it's added gratuitously, like sugar is added gratuitously, then you have a problem, such as sodas. Sure. Absolutely. Well, it'll be very interesting to see where this goes. I know you're getting a lot of attention for your concern about sugar. And this could help raise public awareness of this. It could get legislators caring about it. And it really could help move the dialogue ahead pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm gr- personally, I'm grateful for your work. And I'm also grateful that you came here to, to share it with us today. So thank you very Listen, much. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm as big a fan of yours. Uh, the bottom line is we're all in this together. And the goal here is the American public health. And thank you so much. So our guest was Dr. Robert Lustig, professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, and also author of a forthcoming book called Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. There you'll find a variety of resources about food policy issues, including alerts about late-breaking news, an email newsletter, and, of course, links to other excellent podcasts that we've recorded with guests to the Rudd Center. Thank you.